This is Laura Rice, and this is Full Body Frequency. As much as I love art and culture, fashion and beauty, I'm also a fan of politics and politicians whose platforms center and elevate the human condition. My guest today has gone from certified nursing assistant to the Illinois General Assembly representing the 9th District. And while some folks say that all politics are local, she's made a national impact with her work on behalf of workers, including the Fight for 15, the movement which advocates for $15 per hour as a minimum wage. And between June and July of this year, again, I don't know when you sleep, she sponsored over 20 bills in the Illinois General Assembly while remaining on the forefront, fighting for the rights of workers and children. In addition to her work, her story of pushing past trauma and moving forward to the plus size life she lives now is absolutely inspirational. Illinois State Representative Lakeisha Collins, welcome to Full Body Frequency. Thank you for having me on um, today, Laura. It's such a pleasure to be on your show. Well, I appreciate you joining us. I appreciate the fact that you have time to join us because you are so, so busy. It, it's absolutely amazing. You were the commencement speaker at CCA Academy. It's an alternative high school here in Chicago. And you connected with the students as you shared your life story. And many of us in the audience were also connecting with you I mean, we were amazed about a number of things, but you were so matter of fact about sharing your history as a child who was abused and how you dealt with the abuse and then life circumstances that might have seemed insurmountable. However, in the words of the great Curtis Mayfield, another great Chicagoan, you kept on pushing. So we appreciate you for that. Now, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to take us back to that commencement address to your childhood and share some of the pivotal moments which help push you and shape who you are today. So my mother passed away at the age of 28. She had Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so I was five, my sister was 10. And when my mother passed away, my grandmother who was paralyzed on one side and suffered from diabetes, she took guardianship of us. And so we lived in a house where, you know, she still had some of her, her kids there with her who had their kids, my first cousins. Mm -hmm. and it was a crowded living situation. There was alcohol abuse, drug abuse, drug addiction going on there. And so as a young girl, I was able to see how these addictions affected the person and how they changed their personality and how they treated people. But I knew early on that it was a sickness. I don't know how, as a young girl, I was able to tell that, but I knew every time one of my uncles picked up a bottle and put it towards his lips, that he would be a totally different person when he didn't have a drink in his hand. Or if I saw my auntie or smelled something that smelled strange coming from the room or the bathroom, that she was a totally different person. And so living in that type of environment, I will say we had some good times, but there were some really bad times. And Oftentimes, I was the end of the, the short end of the stick, meaning that in third grade, I had two black eyes, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> two black eyes. And it was because my uncle, he had a problem. He was alcoholic. And I remember that day because he, you know, was begging my grandmother for some money. And my grandmother kept telling him, like, I don't have it. I don't have it. And as a young girl, I remember telling him, you know, leave grandma alone because earlier her sugar was low. And so he took it out on me. And so my face 
I couldn't even recognize my face in the mirror afterwards. Mm. Um, and I was told as a young girl, don't tell anybody. You're going to stay home from school. And I remember when I went back to school, because I couldn't go outside for, you know, a couple of weeks. But I remember when I went back to school, I guess my face was still healing from it. I had someone ask me, you know, what happened? And I lied and said I fell on a skateboard. And I didn't even own a skateboard. I didn't know how to ride a skateboard. But I was so used to covering up the abuse that it became the norm for me as a young person. I suffered from sexual abuse, physical, mental, emotional and it was from people who were supposed to love and protect me. I kept my faith. I prayed a lot. I remember always looking out of my grandmother's window and praying to the sky that someone would come save me. Mm. Um, and so I want to say that by the age of 13, I may have went to probably three or four different schools at that time. And then I transferred to a school out in the suburbs, which was Naperville. We lived on Route 59. And um, I finished up middle school there. And then I went to Wabonzi Valley High School. Had to leave there because the abuse followed me, right? Mm. My sister who slept in a room next to me followed me because he was dating a family member, which I was told I was a liar. <laughs> I was told mm. that, you know, I wasn't going to be anything, that all I was good for is laying on my back. And I was mm. a young girl, mind you. I didn't really understand what that meant back then. But as I got older, I understood, like, so you basically are calling me this. How could you say that to a child? Because I felt like it gave him more leeway to do what he wanted to do. And so I came back to the city, went to school, you know, another high school. And then finally, at that, at that moment, I got tired. I was really tired. And I confided in my softball coach. And she, she knew something was wrong with me because sometimes I use my sarcasm a lot to take away a lot of the hurt that I'm feeling. So that became a norm for me, but mm -hmm. she knew it was something deeper than that. And so um, she was the one who walked me into the doors on 63rd and Emerald. That's when I went into the child welfare system. And so I ended up with a family out in Maywood. I finished up my last two years of high school. It was a struggle because in that time, that was the second time I wanted to commit suicide. And my foster parents, she didn't really understand like, Though I may not be experienced half the stuff I experienced where I came from, but now I'm taking on the role of being the mom to the other foster kids, right? Mm. I'm taking on the role of being the maid. I'm still not really fully experiencing what it's like to be a young person mm -hmm. or getting the, the knowledge that I needed to navigate through life. And for me, it was like, I just can't wait to get up out of here. But I, I, I thought that it was a better lived experience because I was able to sit at a dining room table. I was able to eat with other people at the table. I was able to join, you know, certain teams at school or things like that. So I just know what it's like to live in communities that are, you know, provished. I know what it's like to live in more affluent communities. And so I take all of those experiences and some with me to the General Assembly. I take being a mother who had to make a decision of putting my education on hold, mm -hmm. uh, becoming a certified CNA, living check to check, looking at eviction notices, bills piling up, being embarrassed going to the aid office because I was being grouped in as another statistic, but people not understanding mm -hmm. my story, mm -hmm. uh, struggling for childcare because I had to figure out, you know, how can I give my son good childcare 
while also being at work because every time I turned around, there was an accident with him. Um, so it was just, it was a lot of experiences that really shaped me into the person I am today and also makes it clearer for me when I take votes on things that pertain to my own lived experiences, but to the experience of the people I'm serving too. Mm-hmm. And so um, I always say that it's God who knows your destiny, right? And so Absolutely. I went through all of these things for a reason. And I think that's why um, that's how I'm, I'm I'm able to be separated from other people is because I'm true to, to what I'm doing. And I'll never forget where I came from. It's a beautiful telling of your story. And I want to go back for a quick minute. You started off as a certified nursing assistant. It's hard work. It's often it unappreciated work. It's unfairly compensated work. But in many ways, it reflects what you do now, which is serving the people, doing the heavy lifting, cleaning up the messes in ways that are seen and unseen, appreciated and unappreciated. So you did a fast forward talking about being a CNA and then going to the General Assembly. But tell us about the stops in between, starting Mm -hmm. off as a CNA and then how you ended up advocating for the citizens of the state of Illinois. Yes, that's a longer journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, give so us a quick, I, um, quick Cliff Notes version of it. I, I would try. So okay. um, I got pregnant at the age of 20 and in child welfare, when under the custody of DCFS, you um, can emancipate at 18 or at 21. Mm-hmm. And I chose to stay on until I was 21 because at 18, I was able to get my own apartment as long as I went to school or work. And I did both. Mm -hmm. And when I got pregnant with my first son, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, what am I going to do after this? I'm not going to have the assistance from the state anymore. So what can I do? And so I dropped out of school and I went to get my CNA um, certification and I started to work at a nursing home and I wasn't even hired. (laughs) And I was working on the floor. And I remember the DOM was like, did you interview with me? And I'm like, no, someone told me to wear a blue uniform and go and meet with this lady in HR. And I ended up going on a day where it was orientation. So that's how deep I was, right? (laughs) But hey, I started working. So where's my check? And so I assumed that being a, a healthcare worker and doing the stuff that we were doing, that I would get paid at least like $20 an hour. Was I wrong? Yes. I was getting $8.42, somewhere up there, seven something, $8, mm-hmm. because they had just won a, a contract increase. Um, I was like, what? Eight something dollars and some change? What am I supposed to do? How am I going to take care of my son? And then I got rent that's almost $700. We're in a one bedroom. We're in a, well, at that time, we were in a studio. You know, how am I supposed to survive? So that's when reality kicked in. And so, yes, I became a CNA, and I was just so disappointed in how the environment for the seniors we're living in because it took me back to my grandmother. Mm. And so I started to see her (laughs) in some Mm -hmm. of my residents. I'm like, oh my gosh, you look like my grandmother or that's something my grandmother would say. And so I became really, really protective of my seniors. I knew that a lot of stuff that was happening wasn't just. I had 18 write-ups that were unjust. Mm. I was not aware that I had 18 write-ups. I knew about some of them, which is what got me interested in who Local 4 was at the time, which was the nursing home union. Mm-hmm. And then I heard about a union steward that was supposed to help me get these write-ups out of my file. Mm-hmm. And come to find out it was personal. Every write-up was personal. 
And it was something silly. And it was because of someone in management who, you know, didn't like me because of that workplace, my boyfriend like you type stuff. And I was the new girl. So people, you know, it's crazy. But that's where my activism started. I didn't like the working conditions. I didn't like the way we were being treated as the workers. And I knew we needed to act fast. So I got a contract. I read it front to back one night while I was putting my baby to sleep. And when I went back to work the next day, I was like, uh-uh, something got to change. Mm-hmm. I ended up requesting my foul, got rid of all my write-ups. My colleagues heard about it. They were like, you got to be our union steward. I'm like, I don't want to be the union steward. <laughs> I want to make more money because the stuff we doing <laughs> is not fair. <laughs> and so I ended up becoming their union steward. And it went on from there. So I started to go to the union trainings, meetings, getting educated about the contract more, the negotiation process. And I owe it all to my mentor. His name is Shaba. He really invested time in me. He was the one that was telling me, like, I see so much potential in you. I'm going to give you this opportunity, that opportunity. So I started to travel all over because we're an international union. Mm-hmm. So we're everywhere. And I just took every opportunity. And how we got to fight for 15. Um, I actually went to New York. Well, well, slow, slow down. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. We're going to take a quick break, though, real quick. This is Laura Rice, and you're tuned in to Full Body Frequency. My guest this episode is Illinois State Rep, Lakeisha Collins. She has served as a labor advocate and union organizer. She's a former executive board member for SEIU Healthcare Illinois. And now for some of you all, SEIU stands for Service Employees International Union. And she was a Fight for 15 spokesperson. And as she just said, we're going to get into Fight for 15. So let's talk about this movement, as I call it. The fight for 15, which is a fight for $15 per hour minimum wage that began in New York City in 2012 and its impact today. Before fight for 15, I was a part of our movement for nursing home reform. So that's Mm. how I got involved in the policy part, Mm -hmm. um, because we were talking about the short staffing issue. We've been fighting this for years. And I'll probably get to that if you ask me, you know, more questions around that. But mm-hmm. that is where I got my first taste for how politics plays a role in my job and my everyday life. And I was angry because I didn't understand why we were not making enough money for us to survive and take care of our families or even pay for our basic necessities. Mm-hmm. And so one day my mentor comes to me and say, look, I'm going to New York. I want to take you and, you know, another member and a staff person. We're going to meet these courageous workers who, you know, were fighting for 15 and they won. And I'm like, what? (laughs) He's like, yeah. I'm like, of course I want to go. So we literally went, got the blueprint and brought it back to Chicago. And mind you, it was very unpopular. No one was talking about $15. People thought we were crazy. But my union, which I'm very proud of them because We always make bold moves. And this was a move that was needed. And I'm glad we took that stance, even when people thought we were crazy and we'll never see 15. Mm -hmm. And we knew going in the door that 15 was just the stepping stone, right? Like it was Mm -hmm. just minimum that it wouldn't stop there because wages were so low, right? And so I became the spokesperson for nursing home workers. And I would tell you that making 15 cents one contract or 25 cents another contract just was not enough. And I'll give you a broader picture. I started off at 842 and 11 years later, I was at 1035. What? Yeah. 
as a nurse. That's insane. And Ten years later. Making, yes. When you think about making low wages and you had people who were on a job since the place opened mm-hmm. and they were only at $14 or 15. Mm-hmm. They invested their whole life into a nursing home or any institution and they were barely making $20 an hour. And so the messaging had to be right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we needed people with the lived experience. So the healthcare workers, McDonald's workers, all of these folks played a vital role in this movement. But for me as a mom, that time I had two kids. And mm-hmm. so raising two kids, living on rent that was extremely high and constantly increasing, still trying to pay the utility bills, still trying to pay bus fare, phone bills, and buy shoes and clothes and Oh my gosh, the the money that we were getting from SNAP benefits just was not lasting for a whole month, mm-hmm. right? And so all of these things started to weigh in and that causes stress, which causes death, high blood pressure, all of that. Mm-hmm. And so the messaging had to be right. And so we just started telling our stories. And for me, my story was an everyday story for everybody, which is that why do we have to constantly struggle to keep our head above water? why these big CEOs and bosses are making hundreds of millions of dollars off our labor. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for the workers, mm-hmm. these nursing homes wouldn't stand. Mm-hmm. Like we're the counselors, we're the, you know, <laughs> the cousins, the daughters, the, the brothers or the babies, because I dealt with dementia patients for 11 years. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we were their, their companion. You know, we were the person that they saw from the sun up to the sundown. We were the person who, took care of them or had to clean them up when they were transitioned. And that's a, that's a wear and tear on your mental, your Mm -hmm. physical. And so these people were family. Our residents are family to us and, you know, making less than that 15 just wasn't acceptable. And I'll tell you how serious I was about $15 at that time. Hillary Clinton was running for president. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was on every billboard in Springfield Mm -hmm. because I was the spokesperson, right? Mm-hmm. And I did the roundtable discussion with her about the importance of childcare. The day before they started to really launch me to, to support her campaign, mm-hmm. she came out Nash on TV and said she didn't support 15, but she would support $12. And I told my union, pull all the ads down because I couldn't support her. Mm. That's how serious I was at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Because I can't keep supporting elected officials who do not support the people. And so... Mm-hmm. Though I never wanted to be an elected official, mm-hmm. I knew that when I did run for office, that I needed to be true to me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to campaign on something I'm not going to do. And right. That was the problem. I wanted to show, you know, people a different way to engage with their elected officials and how to hold us accountable. Now, speaking of holding folks accountable, it's 2023. Yes. The economy has changed yet again. Mm-hmm. The cost of basics like groceries, housing, utilities has increased. And you mentioned clothing for children as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was what, 10 years ago? Yes. 10 years ago. So what does a living wage look like today? And how has the fight for workers' rights changed since then? So, be- so because we raised the minimum wage standards to $15 on a city level and then the state, it gives workers an opportunity to negotiate over the 15. So we, what we did was we made the market more competitive, mm-hmm. meaning that in order to retain workers and keep your senior workers, you have to pay them more. 
Okay. You still have some folks that don't think <laughs> they should pay their workers more than a livable wage, but it's needed and it's necessary. And as we can see, there's a shortage everywhere because right. people are tired, especially after the pandemic. People realize that I can make more money doing a boutique online than I can make working in someone else's shop for them and get treated like, you know, I'm less than mm -hmm. and struggle to spend time with my kids and all of these things. I think now we should be at 25 at a minimum wage. Mm -hmm. um, but what I can tell you that we have done at the state. So what I told you about earlier about short staffing, mm -hmm. we fought for nursing home reform, but it didn't have enough teeth. And that was in 2010. Okay. So then I want to say 2019, right before I ran, we won the short staffing enforcement language. When I became an assembly member, we were able to pass the Medicare bed tax, which put the ownership back on the owners made it where in order for them to get their funding, they had to make sure that part of that funding went to the wages, that it was retaining workers and that it respected the senior workers, but that the care for the patients were, you know, really being invested in. So now you have CNAs at nursing homes where they can make up to $26 an hour right now. Wow. That's and great. that's from a whole, from 2010 to 2023. And so I've been a part of those fights. And that's why I said it's important to have people with lived experiences in politics, period, in government, because it's the it's the it's the lived experience that really influenced the, the work that you do when you're there. And so for me, nursing home workers, healthcare workers, child care workers, they're always going to be at the center because mm -hmm. all of those folks, they live in a community, they're part of the working class families. They're the ones who are struggling, but they do essential work. Mm -hmm. We know that because the pandemic shed light on it, right? You think about small business owners who were, you know, hanging on to a thread. Right. Who needed help. Small businesses is what help the community thrive. They're the economic engine. Mm -hmm. If you have a small business in your community and you're patronizing it, that money comes right back to the community. Absolutely. But in, all in more poor communities or disenfranchised communities, you have it where folks, because there's a lack of and there's, you know, deserts, food deserts or healthcare deserts, they're going to other communities and investing over there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the money's not coming back to your own community. So you can't, you can't see any improvement if the money is not circulating in the community. And so that's one thing that I'm really big on as well is educating people about what it means to invest in our own communities but also spending your money there. So if you have a good health food store, mm -hmm. right, that eliminates diabetes, that eliminates, you know, the cancers and things that plague our communities because you're not eating restaurant food all the time. Right. You're able to buy good produce, take it home, cook it yourself. You know how much seasoning you want on your stuff. You don't know right. what the cook is going back there, right? Nope. <laughs> if you're able to shop in your community and go to the store and buy your clothes there, you're spending in your community is going to come back. And so all of these things, you know, that I talk about is just from the work I've done over the years, because I'm not just a labor organizer. I'm a racial justice facilitator, too. Mm -hmm. I'm also somebody who protested ALEC, who make the stand your ground laws. Right, right, right. Like, right. I've done a lot. So many levels to me. So yeah. many levels. And I want to talk about another level of something that I know you're incredibly familiar with and something that has the potential to impact the entire country, just like the fight for 15. Illinois was the first state in the U.S. to pass 
a law implementing the Safety Act, which yes. allows for cashless bail. Mm-hmm. Now, there seems to be a lot of confusion. Uh, give us the facts on why this act is so important and what this act does and what it doesn't do. So I think that we have to remind people, because sometimes we have short-term memory, mm-hmm. but we have to remind people that cash bail was, it goes all the way back to slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, Come on, um, bring it, it bring it, LaKeisha. Bring, I'm sorry, bring it, Illinois State Rep. LaKeisha Collins. <laughs> bring it, please. Please bring it. Let the people know. It goes all the way back, right? Where okay. they would literally pay for you to catch a slave and take them back to their owner, dead or alive. Mm-hmm. Right? This is something that has transitioned over time. And cash bail is really something that was a benefit to some of these smaller communities where, you know, they would get money jailing people for being poor, really. Mm -hmm. And so I think in 2017 is pretty much where this started to, the advocates really started to move on this. In 2016, Khalif Browder, he was a 16-year-old boy who was in New York, Mm -hmm. and he was accused of stealing a backpack. Now, there's millions of Khalif Browlers all over the world. But this is one that really stuck out because Jay-Z actually did a documentary on him. Mm -hmm. And I'm only giving this example because this is kind of where some of that really stems from or where I, you know, remember understanding why we needed to get rid of cash bail. Mm -hmm. And so Khalif Browler was accused of stealing a backpack. Um, Someone said, he stole my backpack. And this has a lot to do with the Pretrial Fairness Act. And so Basically, you're innocent until proven guilty. They sent a 16-year-old to Rikers Island, which is one of the most dangerous holding places that you can think of. If anybody Mm -hmm. knows anything about Rikers Island, if you don't know, look it up and look up Khalif Browder's story. He was basically there just to wait in trial, and he stayed there for about maybe three years. And in those three years, he was tortured. All types of stuff happened to him. It was all caught on camera, which they released those videotapes in the documentary was finally released because he was innocent all along. He was innocent. He committed suicide because of the trauma that he experienced while being locked up for something he didn't even do. Mm -hmm. Currently, right now, because this law does take effect September 18th, since it's now, you know, been proven by the um, Illinois Supreme Court that it is constitutional, someone that could be guilty can put up cash and just walk the streets and do something else anyway, right? The problem is that people were being held because of their economic background. Mm-hmm. So if you were poor and you was a person of color, you're going to sit there. Right. But if you got money or you got people that could put money up for you, for the mm-hmm. longest time, they've been able to put money up and mm-hmm. be able to walk free until mm-hmm. they're proud. Absolutely. Right? Perfect example of that is the former president of the United States of America, Donald Correct. Trump. Correct. Right? Mm-hmm. And so you have folks who are saying that, oh, you know, you're just letting criminals free. No. What we're saying is that the judge still has full authority whether or not they'll detain somebody, but it mm-hmm. won't be on their economic status. It will solely be on if they are risk or mm-hmm. not. So another example it's to, you know, my son, and let's say you have a son, right? Mm-hmm. They're college kids. They're out partying. The son who's driving gets into a car accident. They find out he has liquor in his system. He has no background at all. Let's just say for whatever reason, the judge said, hey, not going to detain him. 
you know, he's a good kid, whatever, whatever, right? Because mm -hmm. this happens to non-Black people a lot because mm -hmm. it, it was an imbalanced system. That person is free to go. Mm -hmm. But let's just say that they may not have the same fate mm -hmm. and the judge say, hey, I'm going to keep you here, but I'm going to set your bond at this amount and it's mm -hmm. too much and that parent can't help that child get out or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're going to sit there. Mm -hmm. uh, or a mom who is still in diapers for her baby and formula mm -hmm. simply because she doesn't have funds to do that. Mm -hmm. She may be sitting in jail away from her child or able to even go to work and, you know, or get a job because mm -hmm. she's just sitting there because she doesn't have the money to get out. Right. Right. So you're basically just jailing the poor, mm -hmm. which costs us more tax dollars. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and someone who probably did do the crime well, probably mm -hmm. is someone who sexually assaulted someone, and this has happened plenty of times before. Mm -hmm. They have the funds to, mm -hmm. to get released. They walk out. They walk so out. Having yeah. a cashless bill that's not based on your economic status is important. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to balance the, the fairness and the justice system, and that's what this does. And another, you know, fear that folks are saying is that, you know, Democrats just move this bill along. That's not true. Every no. state, whether it was organizations, mm -hmm. The public defenders, the clerks, you know, the, the police, state police representatives, all of those folks played a role in crafting the language. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it just didn't, it, it just ended up being into a battle, turning into a battle that mm -hmm. um, they kept, you know, using scare tactics to the community, feeding off their fear and misinforming people. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that no one should have to sit there and wait because they don't have the funds. I hope I have the language right. But it sounds like it's happening for wealthy white folks and folks who have connections. Freedom is happening for them. But incarceration. Your freedom is based off whether you have the money or not. The money, right. Whether you have but the money or not. Incarceration is happening to folks. So some things are happening for folks who have the money and some things are happening to folks that don't have the money. So I just want to talk about a little bit about all the things that incarceration for poor folks actually causes in the community. It's a chain reaction. I mean, you talk about a mother sitting in jail, not being able to care for her child or her children. What happens to those children? You know, what happens to the person that has a job, but because they can't afford bail, they lose their job. What happens to their housing? whether they rent or own, what happens to their families, what happens to the people that they're responsible for. It's a whole chain reaction that happens in all of our communities. Uh, because and predominantly of, black and brown communities, right? Predominantly black and brown communities, absolutely. Yeah. Or whites too. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. again, it's a system that relied on whether or not it was the half and the half nots. That's basically as, ba as basic as I can say it. If you mm -hmm. have it, you have it. If you don't, you don't. You don't. And what mm -hmm. we've seen is that, you know, people who are released, people who are able to go home and await trial, mm -hmm. they will come back for their court date. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because they, don't, they will come back for their court date. They will fight their case. But those people will go back to their jobs, you know. Mm -hmm. But yes, it is a chain reaction. It is a chain reaction. But no one should be held because they just don't have the money to pay. Maybe their mom or grandmother can't put up their house, mm -hmm. right? So they're just sitting there. And from what I know is that oftentimes this person may be innocent, 
Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. lost time out on their life mm-hmm. because they're just sitting there awaiting trial. And anybody who has to wait for trial that's just sitting in 26 in California, some people are sitting at three to 11 years. And then they find out they're innocent. Innocent. They didn't have the money to pay. They're just sitting there. So now they're being traumatized in there. Right. Now they may have lost a loved one, can't go mm-hmm. see them and say their mm-hmm. last goodbyes. Mm-hmm. So now they're released. And now they can't even re-enter to a home, mm-hmm. to a job, mm-hmm. to good health care. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, it's all a domino effect. And that's why I'm working so hard on folks who are returning home. Mm-hmm. Uh, making sure that they have housing, making sure that they can get jobs, mm-hmm. making sure they get access to health care, you know, making sure that we have the necessary tools there for them to succeed so that they don't have to go back or that they don't get caught up at the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Uh, because a lot of people are in survival mode. I would say it again, they're in survival mm-hmm. mode. Right. So when we think about young people, or when we talk about young people just hanging out in the street, you got to ask yourself why. And mm-hmm. I don't blame the parents. And I get so tired of hearing people say it's the parents' fault. You got to ask yourself who's responsible for sucking the schools dry of resources in our place. Who's responsible for the rent going extremely high, the mm-hmm. gentrification that happening in our communities, right? You know, the environment I was raised in, <laughs> I was a young kid. But I, I didn't even think I was poor until I got older and realized, oh, yeah, I was poor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was poor. Right? So I could have been out on the street running around doing all types of stuff. But most young people, they're looking for love. Mm-hmm. They're looking for food. Mm-hmm. They're looking for the next best outfit to wear because they see these little brands coming out. Mm-hmm, like, they're, mm-hmm. young. they're young. Mm-hmm. And they're living in a society that says they should be one way mm-hmm. block opportunities for them to even reach those goals. So that's why we fight even harder to make sure that we correct the wrongdoing in history. And so I work with some colleagues who have been very, very, very active in making sure that we address a lot of the root causes, but because there is so much to do mm-hmm. when it comes to the black community, oftentimes you can't even see the changes as much. Right. Right. Because it right. takes take billions of dollars consistently right. us to actually see that change. So I always encourage that people understand the legislative process, getting to know who all your elected officials are, not just calling, but like mm-hmm. building a relationship. Can mm-hmm. I shadow you in your office? Mm-hmm. Can I come and see how city council goes or the Cook County board meetings go or the city clerk? You know, like really get to know who your elected officials are and what they govern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times you'd be surprised. People don't even know what state reps do. Right. Right. How important we are to this piece of puzzle. They don't mm-hmm. understand that. Those who do, they know. But those who don't know, they're mm-hmm. surprised that like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that you all did this. That's what I spend a lot of my time doing, too, is explaining and then bringing people into this space so they can see how their, their state government works. And I think that's a really, really important thing to know and to grasp, knowing how your state government works, knowing how your local government works, knowing how the federal government works. And it's also 
probably the best example of why we need to vote. We need to register and we need to vote. Yes, that is extremely important. I was talking to two young men by my office one day. They were just walking down the street and I was talking to one of my labor sisters Mm -hmm. about the need to organize our communities. And I just asked them out of the blue, like, hey, you know, what do you want to see different in your community? Mm-hmm. And they just got to talking. And I say, okay, who you think is responsible for that? Who you think, just to test them and see if they knew. And they didn't know. Mm-hmm. So that was my moment to educate them. And then also pull them in on how they can get involved. And like I said, we got to stop pointing the fingers. In order for us to fix our own backyards, we got to work together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. We got to work together. I'm not a savior. I'm not a celebrity. I'm a regular person. I just so happen to be elected to a seat. And I don't take anything I have right now for granted at all. And so I do. my job is to serve. I've been doing that since I was a CNA, since I helped my grandmother to her pot or helped her put on her clothes for dialysis. This is all I do. Mm-hmm. This is what I know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when you don't vote, you basically, you don't have no accountability on your elected official. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You can't have to, can't hold them accountable. I was about to say, you got to hold them accountable yes. to do the work that needs to be done for the people. Absolutely. So, you know, we've talked about this. We just talked about all of your acts of service, all your works of service, and you've given so much to, to workers and working families, the underemployed, the unemployed. How do you balance what you give to others, what you give to your family, and what you give to yourself? It's a sacrifice. And one thing you're going to learn about me, Miss Laura, is that I'm very transparent. My oldest son, 17, mm-hmm. and he told me like his true feelings. I've been a worker since he's been born, meaning that I used to have to work doubles all the time. I had to pick up a second job at a hospital at one point when Ronner the last governor mm-hmm. <laughs> cut child care, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I helped to restore in our governor right now, J.B. Prisker, who I don't care what nobody say about him. He has been a, a, a fierce fighter, especially on these issues, right? Mm-hmm. Restoring child care and then investing in child care. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I love about him the most. But when, when Ronald cut child care and so many other social programs and services that we needed, mm-hmm. um, I had to pick up another job. Mm. So I could barely be around him. I wasn't out partying. I wasn't hanging out with friends. I was working 16 hours a day and still couldn't pay the rent Mm -hmm. or any of the other basic necessities because I was trying to catch up from the last month, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, when your stuff started building up, you're just constantly trying to catch up. And tax season for me was like, oh, thank God I can... Ooh, I could catch up for the next two months, right? Mm-hmm. But then I'm back back doing this all over again until February come back around. That's the, the life of every worker, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. No shame in my game. But I didn't spend a whole lot of time with him, mm-hmm. right? And it was critical moments in his life that he needed me. Mm-hmm. And it was like, hey, I love you. We're going to talk about it tomorrow. We're going to talk, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. talk about it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that was me as a worker. But he remembered that. Mm-hmm. And so it took for us to really talk about it and for me to hear him out. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm glad my son did not stray off. I am glad that he had enough courage to tell me, Mom, there was times where I really wanted to talk to you about something, but I knew you had to go to work or, you know, you weren't there. And so the sacrifice 
of being a working class mom is difficult because mm-hmm. you spend more time with the people you're serving than you do with your child. Mm-hmm. So what I had to learn coming into this role is balance. And so he still was hurt from being a little boy and not seeing his mama because I was working those doubles and he carried that with him as a teenager. Mm-hmm. So me and him would kind of bump hands on stuff and everything I was telling him was the right thing, but he wasn't receiving it mm-hmm. because he was still holding a grudge from being a five, six year old, seven year old. Right. He didn't realize that when I quit the other job that it, it made my checkbook just even more smaller. So Christmas wasn't, I couldn't make it happen, happen. You know, just having those conversations, repairing that relationship is critically important. But now as a legislator and understanding that about him and having that one-on-one with him and restoring that relationship, I learned that I have to prioritize no matter what. Mm-hmm. So if it's a game, if it's an event happening with my babies, I'm dropping everything. Sometimes when you're so caught up in trying to keep a roof over the head that you're not thinking about some of the little things that really do matter, Mm -hmm. you know, and you kind of just say, oh, I'm gonna make it up later. No, they care about what happens in that moment. Right. So I'm grateful for him because I got three boys. And so now I know like the 14 year old, the 10 year old can't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my son, he's a bright young man. I'm happy, you know, the man that he's becoming. But sometimes our kids will give us a reality check. And we as parents just got to take it, learn from it, and do that. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm going to go back to one more thing. Mm-hmm. What do you give to yourself? Who takes care of the caregiver? <laughs> I meditate. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm giving all the tea. <laughs> uh, I'm dating. So um, I prioritize time uh, for myself, even if that's to sleep. Whether it's to listen to music, because I'm big on all types of music. I listen to 60s, 70s, 80s, all of that. I write in my journal, or I'll take time out and just hang with the two the two girls, you know, my two girlfriends, and we'll just get caught up on life. Sometimes I'll sit and talk on the phone with my sister. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so little things to me helps me re-energize. But meditation is my biggest thing, too. Because a lot of the times, like I told you before, I got a lot going on up in here. Mm-hmm. So I'm always thinking of something else to do. Mm-hmm. And I do a lot of self-reflecting. And so when I'm able to quiet my mind and quiet my surroundings, I can I can think clearer. And I'm kind of an introvert, extrovert. So I'm Sometimes I lose a lot of energy when I'm interacting a lot, but mm-hmm. uh, recognizing that has really helped me out a lot too. So okay. just little things satisfy me, Lakeisha Collins. So what's next for you? Do we see a run for the U.S. House of Representatives in your future? <laughs> uh, I love the ninth District. It's, it's a beautiful district. Let me tell you something. The people throughout this district, whether it be from North Lawndale, Tri-Taylor, Old Town, Greek Town, Cabrini Green, like all of them, everyone has been welcoming. What I learned is that there's so much history throughout the communities that I represent. So much history. And I think sometimes people forget how great their community is. Mm-hmm. But I mm-hmm. see so much love. Mm-hmm. And that's something that the news don't talk about. I've spent my time over these last three years amplifying the beauty the history of the communities that I represent Mm -hmm. and just trying to balance it out because there is a wage gap. 
there is a difference in life expectancy on one end to the next. There is gentrification that's taking place, but I work with some incredible colleagues of mine from the city, from the county, federal government, and so it just, all levels. And so to me, it's just really about how do we improve the way government works with our everyday constituents? I can't speak for nobody else. I can only speak for me. Be yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> and serve the people. The Ninth District is, is home to me, but I run for Senate of the 5th District. Okay. Um, our senator has decided she wanted to step down. And being in a General Assembly, working my way up to leadership, being the chair of the House Black Caucus, and understanding the importance of pushing good, meaningful legislation, mm-hmm. um, appropriating funds, and then getting them released. And anybody who knows me and have worked with me, they know that I take this work very seriously. Not to say that no one else is qualified at all, just that I know that I'm capable of doing this work. I think that there's a lot that can be done in the 5th District, but we need to make sure that everyone is represented and there's access to our senator and that there is just a new a new vibe. And so I think I bring all of that and some. And I'm somebody who don't back down. I do not back down. I don't take anything for granted at all. And I keep God first. I, I took a long time to really reflect on what I wanted to do next. I prayed on it, talked to my loved ones, talked to my trusted friends, definitely talked to my base of supporters who I love. They love me. The decision is there. And I ain't turning back. We're taking this to the fifth district. Not my district, but I'm happy that you're <laughs> going to be there, you know, representing all of us for sure. Yes. For sure. So, As we wrap up, I just want folks to know that if you need, if you want more information, and I'm sure you do, for more information on Illinois State Representative Lakeisha Collins and the work that she's doing, visit the Full Body Frequency show notes for her official legislative website and all of her social media platforms. Until next time, tune into your own Full Body Frequency, where large is luscious living.